Have you ever played the game, if I were in charge of the universe, I would, and then you fill in the blank? Like, what if there was a day, even if it was just one day, where you got to make all of the rules and you get to decide how everything would go? Have you ever dreamed of such a moment? Is that just me, just my own personality? Of just Let's pretend for a moment that you are a benevolent dictator and everyone must obey your edicts. What's the very first thing you're going to do? I mean, you could do anything because now you are in charge. For me, being a benevolent dictator, I would immediately give an edict that anyone who obstructs traffic in the left-hand lane will be immediately arrested and imprisoned as they ought to be. I'm just saying that coming from a, about a 2,500 uh, drive, round trip drive I took this week. Littering will receive the death penalty. It will be a crime for restaurants to charge you extra for cheese that you want on your particular food items. I will be banishing the wait staff that gathers together in a restaurant and then sings any form of a happy birthday jingle to you, right? right? Isn't that obnoxious? We hate that, right? I'm going to be running for president. This is my platform. I think I'm going to get elected. 28 hours a week will be considered a full work week. Everyone will begin their employment with eight weeks of vacation. <laughs> Every week we will have a reality show in which a dozen politicians will be randomly selected and they'll make their appeal to the public and like American Idol, we will vote in the end and somebody gets kicked off. <laughs> Country music can only be played between 1 and 3 p.m. in the privacy of your own home. <laughs> this was very controversial at the 9.30 service. But 80s music will be played on loudspeakers throughout the land. <laughs> you can wear pajamas on Thursdays. Teachers would get at least twice what they're making now. And as we all want, a pitch clock in Major League Baseball. <laughs> it's okay if you don't like it. You aren't in charge of the universe. I am at the moment, and I can do whatever I want. When you're in charge, you can make your own rules. There's something about getting our way that feels good. And Burger King knows this. This is why they appeal in their marketing to, you can have it your way, to which I think you better believe it. I want to have it my way, and I'll have this on my sandwich. But in part, this is kind of the American dream, isn't it? Uh, not to rule the universe, but rather to live a life of independence and autonomy that allows us to do things our way a space that is ours that we have sway in. In fact, even as parents, we are trying to prepare our children for the moment when they get to go out on their own and they get to make their own decisions. It is their own autonomy, their own independence. And to prepare them for that, sometimes we start preparing them long before they venture out. We allow them some autonomy to make sometimes their own clothing choices, even if it might embarrass us in public. Or when you let your children decide how they want to arrange and decorate their bedrooms, sometimes even letting them pick out their own paint colors, it is to give to them a moment of their own autonomy, their own independence. Or even moments where they experience real-life consequences when you allow them the freedom of time, when you begin to say, we're no longer giving you bedtime. You go to bed whenever you go to bed. And if you stay up too late, you'll be tired the next day, and you will suffer the natural consequences of that. 
Or if you want to go out with your friends, you can do that, but you know you have homework, and if you skip doing your homework, you're not getting a, an excused letter from your parents to give to the teacher to why you didn't do your homework. You'll just suffer the natural consequences of that. Those are the things that we try to teach our children as they get older, preparing them for their own independence and autonomy. And part of this American dream is that we even get to have a space that's our own, like our own house, our own property, our own land, like not to rent. Like when you rent, it belongs to somebody else. You're just borrowing it, and you're subject to their wishes and their desires. But when it's yours and you own it, that means if I want to paint it pink, I can paint my house pink. And why? Because it's mine, and I'm in charge. And because I'm in charge, I can have it my way. Or if I want to fill my yard with garden gnomes, I can do so. Or if I want to decorate my yard with pink flamingos, I could do so. My neighbors might hate me, but it's my yard. Or if I want to spray paint a football field in my front yard, I can. And why? Because it's mine. I own it. And what I want to happen, happens. I call it the kingdom of Sam. Thus, <laughs> we all have our own kingdoms. Some of our kingdoms might be larger than others, but still your kingdom and what you want to happen, happens. It's a reflection of your effective will. In fact, there are spaces that we can enter into and we can say, oh, this is your kingdom. This is what you want to happen, happens here. If you walked into my office, it would be a reflection of my own will. Here's a picture of my office, right? <laughs> in decor, in look, in cleanliness, in what I have surrounding me, from my books to the pictures I have out, to mementos, to the things that I fidget with, because I'm a fidgeter in my office, so I have my fidget cube and a miniature baseball bat and a big Braveheart sword, and this is how the staff knows what kind of mood I'm in before they come in. <laughs> the music playing out of my office, all a reflection of my effective will. For some of you, especially you single people, your house will be a reflection of your effective will. What you want to happen, happens in design, decor, space, arrangement. But when you get married, you have to merge kingdoms and compromise. And you're no longer the sole ruler. If you're the husband, you get the basement, we might call the man cave, but everything else is under the rulership and authority of your wife. You should just know that up front. Your car will reflect your personality. Some of you have that OCD, your car is just spotless. And others of you have uh, French fries from McDonald's that have been there since 2012. That's just kind of <laughs> your effective will. Your purse or your wallet would probably be a manifestation of your kingdom reign. Your kingdom is the extent of your effective will, your reign and rule, and we all have one. And, and I know we've been rather light and humorous about getting our way and having happened what we want to happen if we were a benevolent dictator of the universe, but in all seriousness... Let me ask you, what happens to others in your kingdom? Like in your kingdom, who gets treated with mercy? And who is looked upon in fear? Who receives your blessing and goodwill? And who's on the bottom of your kingdom? Who does not receive your blessing? Does everyone around you exist for your sake and pleasure, or do you use your sovereign rule for the benefit and the sake of others? What does justice look like in your kingdom? What gets rewarded and what doesn't? How does one get rich in your kingdom? And what do you do with those who don't get an equal or an even start? 
who are the least of these in your kingdom and how are they treated? What's the disparity look like between the rich and the poor in your kingdom, the haves and the have-nots? Who demographically will be the majority? And what does life look like for the minorities in your kingdom? And these seem to be very important and legitimate questions that we should ask in regards to the nature of our own kingdoms, the effective will of our reign and rule. What does it look like when what you want to happen, happens? And while we all would like to think so, my guess is that your kingdom isn't necessarily good news to everyone. And I would imagine that my kingdom isn't necessarily good news to everyone. Now, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than anything else, more than any other topic, more than any other issue. The number one thing that Jesus talks about more than anything else is this idea of the kingdom of God. In fact, he'll say in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. And this is the center of Jesus' teachings, the primary thing in His ministry, and the priority of His focus. And so you, when you ask, what is the kingdom of God? The answer is easy. It's the same as what we've just been illustrating with your kingdom. It is the extent of God's effective will, that what He wants to happen, happens. And immediately as I say that, we're left with a theological conundrum. You should be saying, well, wait a minute. If we're talking about God then shouldn't the extent of His effective will be everywhere? Because He's God, right? I mean, if God wants something to happen, then it happens, right? Wrong. That's not how it works. In fact, there's this little story in Genesis chapter 3 about a tree and a garden and a piece of fruit and Adam and Eve. And the short of the story is that God infringes on His own sovereignty doing so out of love and free will and the dignity of each being being created in His image and other things we don't have time to go into, but in it, in it allowing other kingdoms outside of His to exist. When Adam and Eve eat of the tree, what they establish is their own reign and rule, the extent of their own effective will, and they willed to eat the fruit in spite of the wishes of God. And you immediately have two kingdoms, God's and the one established by Adam and Eve, and in it, you have kingdoms colliding. And the truth is, there are a lot of other kingdoms at work here on the earth, and the New Testament pictures those kingdoms having their other authorities and other principalities at work, and the language that we use in the New Testament is that of spiritual warfare. It's kingdoms colliding. This is why Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What you see is this picture of kingdoms are in conflict, and never once, not once, does the New Testament give us a picture that for now, God always gets His way, that He, for now, allows other kingdoms to exist. And if you're asking me to point to the place of where the full extent of God's effective will takes place, I would not point to anywhere here on the earth. And I don't mean to minimize the issue or the complexity of the problem of suffering and also the existence of God. Trust me, I'm very aware, and I'm not trying to minimize it at all. But if you're asking me why bad things happen, my answer is 
is because other kingdoms exist. So a family just driving in their minivan on the highway encounters a drunk driver coming at them from the opposite direction, crosses the center line, and kills them. And in the end, we all, how could this happen? To which I say, I know, like, I know. I can't justify it. I can't explain it. I don't have all the answers. All I know is for now, there are other kingdoms that exist. Even the kingdom of that drunk driver where he has an extent of his own reign and rule. And clearly, his kingdom was not good news for the family in the minivan. But if I did have to point to a place where the extent of God's effective reign and rule exists, I would say it's in heaven. And as soon as I say heaven, I have to confess this is shrouded in mystery to me. I know people often will ask me my opinion of heaven and what it's like and what, you know, those sorts of things. And, and my answer is it's like Disney World on a non-summer and spring break time. That's what heaven is like. And if you were to ask me, well, what's hell like? Almost the same answer. It's Disney World on spring break in summertime. <laughs> so like when my kids were young and would ask questions, and what I'd answer this is like, just think of the most wonderful place that you could imagine. Cheese fries, as far as the eye can see. <laughs> That's heaven. We don't know. And all the descriptions of heaven in the Bible, they're just metaphors, at least in my personal opinion. I don't think there's really going to be streets of gold and crystal seas and mansions. But if you're a persecuted and impoverished people in the first century Palestine, the images and metaphors of mansions and streets of gold and crystal seas are some of the most amazing things that you can imagine. Now, in 2018, in light of special effects in Hollywood and amazing directors like Steven Spielberg and others, streets of gold and mansions aren't all that compelling. I would choose other metaphors. So I don't know exactly what heaven is like, and I don't believe anyone has come back to tell us, including people trying to make money from global Christians with their stories of 45 minutes in heaven, it is shrouded in mystery. But what I believe is, is that what God wants to happen, happens there. There are no other kingdoms. And the last time someone tried to establish another kingdom there, he got the boot. And the reason why is because there is no place in heaven for a second kingdom. God's kingdom reigns alone. It is the fullness and perfect manifestation of his kingdom reign, the full extent of his will, the perfect reality of what he wants to happen, happens, which means this. Guess what isn't there? Sickness. Ever. There is no disease. No one ever gets cancer there. There's not even a hint of injustice anywhere in the full reign of God. Pain is not a reality. Suffering is not there. No discrimination whatsoever. No Michigan football at all. I'm just, just kidding, just kidding. Just a joke. Now, this is technically a description, uh, not necessarily of heaven, uh, but what happens when God dwells here on the earth, but it gives us a glimpse of what I'm talking about here. It's in Revelation 21, verse 4. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
And you're going to have to use your divine imagination. And I imagine for the rest of this series we'll need this. But I need you, if you can, for just a moment to imagine what it must be like around God where nothing is allowed to exist that He doesn't want to exist. Where there's only one kingdom, His, and where the full extent of what He wants to happen, happens. I mean, just for a moment, can you catch a glimpse? Can you imagine what love must feel like in heaven? I mean, can you imagine the capacity for real love in heaven? I mean, complete, unconditional, with absolutely no ulterior motive, that kind of love. Or can you imagine what joy must feel like in heaven? I mean, absolutely no twinge of anything that can rob you of your joy kind of joy. And could you imagine what peace must feel like in heaven? I mean, like... Shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, to its fullest depth and meaning, meaning well-being and health and prosperity. More than just the absence of conflict, peace in the sense that there is multiple blessing on each side. Could you imagine what justice must feel like in heaven, or kindness, or goodness, or gentleness? Could you imagine just what health would feel like in heaven? No more blood pressure pills or insulin shots or chemotherapy or COPD or anything that would rob us of the life God intended from the very beginning. When I was in uh, college, attended a church there. The preacher's name was Mike Cope, and Mike and his wife Diane, their firstborn uh, daughter, Megan, was born with all sorts of physical and mental handicaps and challenges and wasn't expected to have a very long life expectancy. And uh, Megan got to be 12 years old and began to deteriorate in a uh, her condition, her health. And Mike told the story of he came home one day after work and he walked in and his wife Diane was just holding Megan in her arms and she was nonverbal and not responsive and was just telling her as she stroked her hair of all the things she was going to get to do in heaven that she never got to experience on earth. Be able to laugh, to skip, to run, to play with kids, to sing. All the things it must be like to be in the full extent of God's kingdom reign. We don't have a lot to go on in Scripture. We just don't. And none of us has ever been there. We have to use our divine imaginations to simply guess at what it must be like to be in the fullness of God's kingdom reign, His perfect reign and rule. What He wants to happen, happens. But I bet spring shows up on time and it is beautiful. <laughs> I don't know whose kingdom this is. I bet the color, colors in heaven are just amazing. Like our rods and cones are just exploding in an array of overwhelming beauty. I mean, I bet all of our senses just light up in ways we never knew was possible. And I bet just the mere presence of God and the resurrected Jesus could be overwhelming. And what does any of this have to do with our topic? Well, simply this. Jesus has actually been in heaven. Like, he doesn't have to do this imagination thing. Like, he knows. He knows what it is like to be in that space where the only kingdom that exists is the one that belongs to his Father. There are no other conflicting kingdoms. There are no kingdoms colliding. Spiritual warfare is not a reality in that space. And Jesus knows what it can look like if the Father gets his way and his kingdom manifests fully. 
And more than for Jesus, man, was it going to be great when everyone dies and finally gets to leave the earth and gets to go to heaven and be in heaven? That isn't Jesus' desire. What does Jesus ask for? That what it's like there in heaven comes down to the earth. So last week, Lowell preached and reminded us and, and informed us from Matthew 6, verses 9 to 10, this, as the disciples asked Jesus, could you teach us how to pray? He responds with this, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. And do you hear what Jesus is asking his father? He is asking, not that, that we all get to go there, but that what is there comes down here. And the direction is important. Not that we go up, but that what is up comes down. And I think this is the most misunderstood doctrine of Christianity by Christians themselves. Somewhere along the way, we've been convinced that the final act has nothing to do with the earth, meaning down, and it is all about what is in heaven, meaning up that we die and float up into heaven where we spend eternity singing worship songs to God or Jesus, which by the way as a kid sounds more like hell to me, and we have the direction of the final act all wrong. It isn't up, it is down. Let me go back and read that passage from Revelation chapter 21 to give it fuller context. It actually begins in verse 1, and this is what it says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming where? Down. Out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the, His people, the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I'll write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Do you see the directional movement? It isn't up, it is down. Heaven comes down. What it's like up there shows up down here. Now, this shouldn't be too much of a surprise as Jesus was like the ultimate ambassador of what it was like up there. He was kind of a walking manifestation of the kingdom of God wherever he went, meaning wherever he went, what God wanted to happen, happened. And just think about that for a moment. Jesus, as an ambassador of the kingdom of God, and where he went, a manifestation of the kingdom of God broke out, meaning what God wanted to happen, happened. So when Jesus came into the presence of sickness, what happened? Healing. And what is that? It's a manifestation of what God wants to happen, happens. And when Jesus encounters the demonic, what always happens? Deliverance. And what is that? That's a manifestation of what God wants to happen, happens. And when Jesus encounters those who are enslaved in sin and guilt and shame, what happens? He sets them free and gives them new life. And when people who have no hope and no prospects encounter Jesus, what always happens? They get hope and they come alive. And Jesus' working theme is in Luke chapter 4 as he quotes the book of Isaiah in verse 18. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news 
And not just to everybody, but listen, especially to what? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All of this is a taste of heaven here on earth. It is direction. Heaven has come down. But guess who else is an ambassador of the kingdom of God, just like Jesus? You. This is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you, on Christ's behalf, be, be reconciled to God. And when Jesus was an ambassador, everywhere he went, a manifestation of the kingdom of God just broke out. And I'd ask, what about you? Wherever you go, do you bring heaven with you? And I don't mean that as some sort of weird, cute bumper sticker. I, I really mean, are you good news? Are you a manifestation of the gospel? So, so when Paul will write to the church in Philippi in chapter 1, verse 27, and say, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, I don't think what he means is some moralistic standard like, oh yeah, I don't drink, I don't cuss, I don't smoke. I think what he's trying to say is, does your life reflect good news to those around you? So let me ask you, would a Muslim find you to be good news? Would an atheist find your life to be good news? The extent of your effective will, your reign and rule, your own kingdom, would an immigrant find you to be good news? Or would they know you think it's fair and just to split up their family? Would minorities or women or those in the LGBTQ community find you to be good news? Or do they know in your kingdom they're going to get screwed? They're going to get persecuted. They're going to find themselves at the bottom. Would those who are suffering under chronic diseases and health issues know that under your kingdom, they would not have access to affordable health care? Would the least of these around you wish that they were wealthy white male Christians so they could be treated better? If so, your kingdom is not good news, and you're not a manifestation of the gospel. And if this is you, your kingdom is in direct conflict with God's kingdom because God's kingdom is good news. And as we see in Jesus, especially good news to the least of these. In fact, do you know who doesn't find Jesus' teachings on the kingdom good news? Those who have all the power. They're the ones that killed him. And there's a real prayer that exists here and one that we're supposed to be working for and on behalf of. This simple prayer from Jesus that asks that his Father would bring to the earth what the Son knows exists in heaven. And you can very quickly be overwhelmed by the prayer because there are 7.6 billion people who live on this planet. Think about it for a moment. 7.6 billion. We would be quickly overwhelmed by the magnitude of that. And so what happens is like even this week, you could watch news clips of Syrian children and their present living conditions and want to desperately do something. And maybe some of us are called to do that. And if so, God's peace and protection in the midst of it. But we quickly are at a loss. And we just kind of throw up our hands and think, what can I do about the plight of 7.6 billion people? 
And the answer is, probably not much. The prayer needs to be brought home to where we actually live and work and go to school. And the truth, of us, the truth is that most of us have very little leverage in Syria. We aren't capable of manifesting much of the kingdom of God there. But for some of you in the room, you have a lot of leverage in Mr. Ponder's class first hour at Riley High School because that's where you'll find yourself tomorrow morning. And some of you in this room have leverage in an entire route around the city of South Bend as you drive your UPS truck and deliver packages. You're like a flying manifestation of the kingdom covering more territory than most of us will ever have the opportunity to have. And some of you will actually have 25 little eyes looking at you in your classroom in which you have tremendous opportunity to be good news and to manifest the kingdom of God. And some of you will have an entire wing of an ICU in a local hospital here in which you will serve as a nurse tending and caring to families who are in the midst of great anxiety and fear and patients who are suffering under a host of ailments and you are in a place of great kingdom potential. And others of you, you, you see people coming through your checkout line and you're just trying to survive the day and everything seems to be going on. But I want you to know, listen, you have a divine opportunity to be in that moment, in that moment, to be good news. And others of you, like you're a server at a restaurant and you're going to be tempted to be consumed by your own kingdom. But I just want you to know there's a good chance that at your table will be a couple who have four kids. And the kids won't be with them, but they have four kids. Two of them have severe mental and physical handicaps. They have fragile, fragile uh, medical conditions, and they can only go out to eat twice a year. And that's it. But what everyone else gets to do on a regular basis without any thought, they only get to do twice a year. And all the stars aligned, and they're at your table. And they don't get to do this very often. And they are tired, and they are exhausted. And they haven't had quality time together in a very long time, at least not without interruption. And you are their server. And you, in this moment, have more kingdom leverage than you ever knew possible to be good news. You might have to use your creativity, your divine imagination, but most of you have far more kingdom opportunity than you ever imagined. The ability to be good news. Not in Syria, but exactly where you're going to be next. So let us not be overwhelmed with Syria, at least for the moment. And let us think, how do we bring heaven down to earth here in South Bend? For this is what we have been commissioned to do. How do we leverage the gospel, the good news, on Irvington and Woodside and Oakside and Ewing and Fellows? in Ireland Road, and in Southmore, and at Jackson Middle School and Hay Primary Center. This we can do. And this becomes our prayer, right from Jesus' own mouth. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in South Bend, just like it is in heaven. Next week we'll pick this up, and we'll look specifically at South Bend, our neighborhood, our community, our city, and ask, how do we live out Jesus' prayer here? How does heaven come down to South Bend through us as ambassadors in this venture?
Let's pray together. God, we are grateful that your kingdom is here. Even if it's just in part, and we are still waiting for the fullness of your kingdom to advance and to reign, we are at least thankful that we get to say, we get to be a part of your kingdom. At the same time, we recognize the greatest act of repentance in all of our lives might be to lay down our own kingdom and to merge and yield ours into your kingdom. And so we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would grant us courage to be and to serve as ambassadors of your son, Jesus. When we walk out of here, may we this week be good news. This is what we ask for your glory. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.